episode 11. Greetings and welcome in to the Patuxet General. I am your host, Jess. Born and raised here, I give you the inside scoop on all things Patuxetish, including recipes, drinks, secret locations, and local ghost stories. But first, I would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. They actually make it possible for us to bring you all of this new exciting content. So, as a gift to them, we will be putting up a cut-free version of A Christmas Carol in its entirety. Also, we have recipes and local photos as a bonus treat. Enjoy, you guys! This week, we have my most asked-for recipe of all time, chocolate chip cookies. Now, if you think that's basic, you haven't had them yet. Then, we will look into a Rhode Island favorite drink, the Raspberry Lime Ricky, as well as its originator, the Lime Ricky, an alcoholic cocktail. Our House on the Corner series continues with the reading of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by Howard Phillips Lovecraft. A poem. Did you see that eagle? The wind bites through my scarf. Dark and cold January mornings seep into my coat. Chocolate chip cookies. We all make chocolate chip cookies. It's the most popular homemade cookie in the U.S. I, personally, have made thousands. Years ago, I started baking professionally in the village, and I designed this recipe to tempt the pickiest of cookie eaters. Not too crispy, not too soft, not too bready, not too chocolatey. Something rich with a golden halo around the cookie. I tested them on co-workers, family members, older folks, as well as children. And there are a few tricks I learned during this time. Like, use equal amounts flour and chocolate. Uh, double the vanilla amount, and most importantly, do not leave them alone to bake. I like a medium to large size cookie, and I suppose others do as well because I sold them singly at the Patuxet Village Farmer's Market, by the jar at Little Falls Bakery and Cafe, and by the box for the holidays. I have never had leftovers, true facts. Try this method, and you won't either. For this recipe, you will need one pound of softened butter, one and a half cups of brown sugar, one and a half cups of white sugar, four eggs, four teaspoons of vanilla, two teaspoons of baking soda, one teaspoon of salt, four and a half cups of flour, and four and a half cups of chocolate chips. You will also need one medium-sized scoop and parchment paper. Let's do it. Preheat your oven to 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Put parchment paper on a cookie sheet. It absorbs excess oil and makes removal and cleanup easier. Cream the butter and the sugars until a uniform consistency, scraping down the sides every now and then. Combine dry ingredients in a bowl and stir a bit. This way, nobody gets a chunk of baking soda in their cookie because that's nasty. Add the eggs and vanilla and combine. Be very careful to not overmix at this point. Then add the dry ingredients and chocolate chips. Carefully combine. The batter wants to be uniform in texture, but mixed as gently as possible. Pack the batter into the scoop along the side of the bowl and put on a parchment-lined sheet. Make sure to leave enough room between cookies so that they don't touch or else they'll dry out. Uh, moisture will leak out where they broke against each other. 
you know, if you make a mistake, eat those hot. Uh, you know, take one for the team or three. They bake for about 12 minutes or until there is a gold ring all around the edge. This recipe is for the first time. You may have to double it after they try it. Recipe update. This just in. We have an update on episode 8th scone recipe from one of our Patreon subscribers, Jen. She says... Hi, Jess. I hope you are well. Here's my veganized blueberry scones. I substituted the eggs for flax eggs and omitted the egg wash. A flax egg is one tablespoon ground flax plus three tablespoons water per flax egg. I used non-dairy milk, plain unsweetened almond milk, non-dairy yogurt, almond breeze vanilla and non-dairy butter, earth balance. I had tons of wet mix left over, so I halved the originally posted wet mix per batch. This makes 12. So good. Well, thanks, Jen. Those sound crazy yummy. We love the feedback, and I bet that helps out others of our vegan pals. Huzzah! This week's drink, the Raspberry Lime Ricky, was originally from Washington, D.C., and named after Colonel Joseph Ricky from Missouri, who was a lobbyist in the 1800s. It was started at Shoemaker's Bar. Whether you call it a Ricky or a Gin Ricky, the Colonel drank it like this. Rye whiskey, fizzy Apollonius water, and lemon juice on the rocks. Now, supposedly, in 1883, a certain Missouri representative started drinking that Joe Ricky drink with lime instead of lemon and often substituted gin for whiskey, resurging its popularity. First, let's take on the soft drink version, a New England favorite popularized during Prohibition. New Yorkers prefer the cherry lime Ricky, but here in RI, it's raspberry lime Ricky all the way. We found this recipe in Yankee Magazine. First, the raspberry syrup. You will need one cup of water, one half cup of raspberries, and three quarters of a cup of water. Heat the water and sugar until you can see through it. Then add the berries. Boil the water and sugar and berries for two minutes. Then strain out the seeds and chill. For the drink, you will need ice, one lime, two cups unflavored seltzer water, six tablespoons raspberry syrup. Fill two glasses with ice. Squeeze one half lime into each glass and drop in. Cover with one cup of seltzer and stir in three tablespoons of raspberry syrup into each. Cover with one cup seltzer and stir three tablespoons of raspberry syrup into each. Refreshing, sweet, and absolute classic. Now, if you like booze, you could try a lime ricky, which has either two ounces of bourbon, rye whiskey, or gin, one half lime, and sparkling mineral water. Pour over ice and stir once or twice, and love it just like Colonel Joseph Ricky. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. 
$10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. This week for our House on the Corner series, we continue our reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward that we have started in Episode 6. So close the curtains, grab a drink, and let's begin. One must look back at Charles Ward's earlier life as something belonging as much to the past as the antiquities he loved so keenly. In the autumn of 1918, with a considerable show of zest in the military training of the period, he had begun his junior year at the Moses Brown School, which lies very near his home. The old main building, erected in 1819, had always charmed his youthful antiquarian sense and the spacious park in which the academy is set appealed to his sharp eye for landscape. His social activities were few, and his hours were spent mainly at home, in rambling walks, in his classes and drills, and in pursuit of antiquarian and genealogical data at the city hall. The State House, the Public Library, the Athenaeum, the Historical Society, the John Carter Brown and John Hay Libraries of Brown University, and the newly opened Shepley Library in Benefit Street. One may picture him yet, as he was in those days, tall, slim, and blonde, with studious eyes and a slight droop, dressed somewhat carelessly and giving a dominant impression of harmless awkwardness rather than attractiveness. His walks were always adventures in antiquity, during which he managed to recapture from the myriad relics of a glamorous old city a vivid and connected picture of the centuries before. His home was a great Georgian mansion atop a well-nigh precipitous hill that rises just east of the river. And from the rear windows of its rambling wings, he could look dizzily out over the clustered spires, domes, roofs, and skyscraper summits of the lower town to the purple hills of the countryside beyond. Here he was born, and from the lovely classic porch of the double-bayed brick facade his nurse had first wheeled him in his carriage, past the little white farmhouse of two hundred years before that the town had long ago overtaken, and on toward the stately colleges along the shady, sumptuous street, whose old square brick mansions and smaller wooden houses with narrow, heavy columned Doric porches gleamed solid and exclusive amidst their generous yards and gardens. He had been wheeled, too, along sleepy Congdon Street, one tier lower down on the steep hill, and with all its eastern homes on high terraces. The small wooden houses averaged a greater age here, for it was up this hill that the growing town had climbed. And in these rides he had imbibed something of the color of a quaint colonial village. The nurse used to stop and sit on the benches of Prospect Terrace to chat with policemen. And one of the child's first memories was of the great westward sea of hazy hoofs and domes and steeples in the far hills, which he saw one winter afternoon from that great railed embankment 
Violet and mystic against a fevered apocalyptic sunset of reds and golds and purples and curious greens. The vast marble dome of the State House stood out in its massive silhouette, its crowning statue haloed fantastically by a break in one of the tinted stratus clouds that barred the flaming sky. When he was larger, his famous walks began, first with his impatiently dragged nurse, and then alone in dreamy meditation. Farther and farther down that almost perpendicular hill he would venture, each time reaching older and quainter levels of the ancient city. He would hesitate gingerly down vertical jank street with its blank walls and colonial gables to the shady Benefit Street corner, where before him was a wooden antique with an iconic plastered pair of doorways and beside him a prehistoric gamble roofer with a bit of primal farmyard remaining and the great John Durfee house with its fallen vestiges of Georgian grandeur. It was getting to be a slum here, but the Titan Elms cast a restoring shadow over the place, and the boy used to stroll south past the long lines of the pre-revolutionary homes with their great central chimneys and classic portals. On the eastern side, they were set high over the basements with railed double flights of stone steps, and the young Charles could picture them as they were when the street was new, and red heels and periwigs set off the painted pediments whose sign of wear were now becoming so visible. Westward, the hill dropped almost as steeply as above, down to the old town street that the founders had laid out at the river's edge in 1636. Here ran innumerable little lanes of leaning, huddled houses of immense antiquity. And fascinated though he was, it was not long before he dared to thread their archaic verticality for fear they would turn out a dream or a gateway to unknown terrors. He found it much less formidable to continue along Benefit Street past the iron fence of St. John's Hidden Churchyard and near the 1761 Colony House and the moldering bulk of the Golden Ball Inn where Washington stopped. At Meeting Street, the successive Goal Lane and King Street of other periods, he would look upward to the east and see the arched flight of steps to which the highway had to resort in climbing the slope. And downward to the west, glimpsing the old brick colonial schoolhouse that smiles across the road at the ancient sign of Shakespeare's head, where the Providence Gazette and Country Journal was printed before the Revolution. Then came the exquisite First Baptist Church of 1775, luxurious with its matchless gib steeple and the Georgian roofs and cupolas hovering by. Here into the southward, the neighborhood became better, flowering at last into a marvelous group of early mansions. But still, the little ancient lanes led off down the precipice to the west and dipping to a riot of iridescent decay where the wicked old waterfront recalls its proud East India days amid polygon vice and squalor, rotting wharves, blear-eyed ship chanderies, with such surviving alley names as packet, bullion, gold, silver, goin, doubloon, sovereign, gilder, dollar, dime, and cent. Sometimes, as he grew taller and more adventurous, young Ward would venture down into the maelstrom of tottering houses, broken transoms, tumbling steps, twisted balustrades, swarthy faces, and nameless odors. Winding from South Main to Water Street, searching out the docks where the bay and sound steamers still touched, 
and returning northward at this lower level past the steep-roofed 1816 warehouses and the broad square at the Great Bridge, where the 1773 Market House still stands firm on its ancient arches. In that square, he would pause to drink in the bewildering beauty of this old town as it rises on its eastward bluff, decked with its Georgian spires and crowned by the vast new Christian science dome, as London is crowned by St. Paul's. He is most likely to reach this point in the late afternoon, when the slanting sunlight touches the market house and the ancient hill roofs and belfries with gold, and throws magic around them in the dreaming wharf, where Providence India men used to ride at anchor. After a long look, he would grow almost dizzy with a poet's love for the sight. And then he would scale and slope homeward in the dusk past the old white church and up the narrow, precipitous ways where yellow gleams would begin to peep out in small-paned windows through fanlights set high over double flights of steps with curious wrought-iron railings. At other times in later years, he would seek for vivid contrasts. Spending half a walk in the crumbling colonial regions northwest of his home, where the hill drops to the lower eminence of Stampers Hill, with its ghetto quarter clustering round the place where Boston Stagecoach used to start before the Revolution, and the other half in the gracious southerly realm about George benevolent power and William streets where the old slope holds unchanged the fine estates and bits of walled garden and steep green lane in which so many fragrant memories linger these rambles together with the diligent studies which accompanied them certainly account for a large amount of the antiquarian lore which at last crowded the modern world from charles ward's mind and illustrate the mental soil upon which it fell in that fateful winter of 1919 and 20 the seeds that came to such strange and terrible fruition. Dr. Willett is certain that, up to this ill-omened winner of first change, Charles Ward's antiquarianism was free from every trace of the morbid. Graveyards held for him no particular attraction beyond their quaintness and historic value, and anything like violence or savage instinct he was utterly devoid. Then, by insidious degrees, there appeared to develop a curious sequel to one of the genealogical triumphs of the year before, when he had discovered among his maternal ancestors a certain very long-lived man named Joseph Kerwin, who had come in from Salem in March of 1692, and about whom a whispered series of highly peculiar and disquieting stories clustered. Ward's great-great-grandfather, Welcome Potter, had in 1785 married a certain Anne Tillinghast, daughter of Mrs. Eliza, daughter to Captain James Tillinghast of whose paternity the family had preserved no trace. Later, in 1918, whilst examining a volume of original town records and manuscript, the young genealogist encountered an entry describing a legal change of name, by which, in 1772, a Mrs. Eliza Kerwin, widow of Joseph Kerwin, resumed, along with her seven-year-old daughter Anne, her maiden name of Tillinghast on the ground that her husband's name had become a public reproach by reason of what was known after his disease, the witch confirming the ancient common rumor, though not to be credited by a loyal wife till so proven as to be wholly past doubting. 
This entry came to light upon the accidental separation of two leaves, which had been carefully pasted together and treated as one by a labored revision of the page numbers. It was at once clear to Charles Ward that he indeed discovered a hitherto unknown great-great-great-grandfather. The discovery doubly excited him, because he had already heard vague reports and had seen scattered allusions relating to this person, about whom there remained so few publicly available records, aside from those becoming public only in modern times, that it almost seemed as if a conspiracy had existed to blot him from memory. What did appear, moreover was of such a singular and provocative nature that one could not fail to imagine curiously what it was that the colonial recorders were so anxious to conceal and forget, or to suspect that the deletion had reasons all too valid. Before this, Ward had been content to let his romancing about old Joseph Kerwin remain in its idle stage, but having discovered his own relationship to this apparently hushed-up character, he proceeded to hunt out as systematically as possible whatever he might find out concerning him. In this excited quest, he eventually succeeded beyond his highest expectations for old letters, diaries, and sheaves of unpublished memoirs and cobwebbed Providence garrets and elsewhere yielded many illuminating passages which their writers had not thought it worth their while to destroy. One important sidelight came from a point as remote as New York where some Rhode Island colonial correspondence was stored in the museum at Fronesee's Tavern. The really crucial thing, though, in what in Dr. Willett's opinion formed the definite source of Ward's undoing, was the matter found in August 1919 behind the paneling of the crumbling house in Olney Court. It was that, beyond a doubt, which opened up those black vistas whose end was deeper than the pit. We'd like to thank you again for joining us today at the PG. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or ghost stories, that's right, I said ghost stories, reach us at our email, jess at patuxetgeneral.com. So please, meet me back here next time at the Patuxet General, a Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxet.